Episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where out of print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DM's Guild affiliate links and for being patrons at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. All your misconceptions, stay right there, let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play d and you don't dress... Welcome to the Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. In this episode, number 315, we are going to delve deep into the maze-like ruins of long-dead civilizations as we discuss Mega Dungeons. I am solo this episode. That's okay, though, because I have lined up a full lineup of fantabulous guests. First up is the our favorite actual play DM from the World Tree Burns podcast, which I hear they also stream live, maybe? Uh, the writer, a writer for Cobalt Press. Welcome back, Dan Dillon. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We're always glad to have Dan Dillon on the show. Yes. And the man who edits all of those live streamed World Tree Burns episodes into audio for us to release uh, over here at the Tome Show, we have the famous Neil Powell. Yes, I'm back. You're back. Very good. Uh, And also with us in this episode is the man who then takes that audio that Neil sends us, tags a Tome Show intro on it, and then uploads it and schedules it for release. Uh, The man who, it should be abundantly clear, is basically the workhorse for the Tome Show, the senior editor, Dan, Dan, not Dan Dillon, (laughs) Sam Dillon. We have Dan Dan Dillon and Damn Dillon. Yeah, Damn Dillon. Damn Dillon. Too many Dillons. Too many Dillons. Hello, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And lastly, our returning champion, who doesn't have anything to do that I know of with the World Tree Burns, uh, but is almost certainly the greatest amongst us tonight, for defending her title of Tome Show Champion, it is the gamer extraordinaire, Rabbit Stoddard. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. And this is your second episode as well, isn't it? It is, actually. And I think the last time we were... uh, going over Dan's work, so that's my tenuous (laughs) connection to Midgard there. There you go. There you go. A fair bit of it, yeah. Was that the the Hero's Handbook episode? Yes. That Uh, we had to split in two? Double parter. Yeah. So I guess technically it's my third time, but that one was like really good. I I have bad news for you, Rabbit and Neil. Uh, Uh You've been on the show twice. Now you're... You're just part of the crew, so ex- expect to be getting a call about once a month asking me to be on a show from now okay. on. <laughs> oh no, stop, help! I've been... <laughs> All right, so this episode idea came to us from our patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Uh, it stands to reason that this is a topic worth discussing with all the crazy dungeons that have been released for 5th edition, be it Princes of the Apocalypse, Tomb of Annihilation, or the recently released Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which we will we will be reviewing in the next episode. Uh, I guess it's worth looking at Mega Dungeons a little more closely. They are a unique sort of setting uh, and a common trope in D&D, but because of that unique sort of uh, of Mega Dungeons, or running them 
has a different issues than other settings might have, and it's kind of totally worth talking about. So before we talk about that, though, let's mention the sponsor. Noble Knight is back to support us. They are a great online and brick-and-mortar game store. They specialize in finding out-of-print products, and my pick for this episode highlights that. Uh, it is it is an out, a long out-of-print product. It's been out-of-print for oh, almost 30 years um, it is the most expansive dungeon of the Greyhawk setting from back in second edition. It is Greyhawk Ruins. Um, it is not a is not a cheap buy because it's so hard to find and so out of print. Um, with their cheapest version coming in at about eighty five dollars, but it is a piece of sort of uh, second edition um, history for for D anD D and Mega Dungeons that I think it's worth uh, taking a look at if you've got the money to spend on it. Has anybody ever ever uh, played around with the Greyhawk Ruins uh, product? I haven't. That's uh, that's intriguing. Yeah. There you go. Now we're all going to go buy it. We're going to have a bidding yeah. war. We're going to have a bidding war on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure Noble Knight will be very upset when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Noble Knight Games has been serving the needs of thousands of gamers worldwide since 1997. With a huge selection of over 30,000 unique products, including discounts on most in-print games of up to 50% off or more. Noble Knight Games is the place for out-of-print RPGs, board games, war games, collectible card games, miniatures, and all things game-related. They ship worldwide and will purchase or trade your titles you no longer need, new, or used. Your satisfaction is guaranteed. Just visit www.noblenight.com or visit our website for direct access to thousands of new, out-of-print, and in some cases, one-of-a-kind items. So it is time to talk about Mega Dungeons, and before we do that, um, I wanted to start off by asking everybody what their favorite Mega Dungeon is, and that'll give give us a chance to, to get one more chance to hear everybody's voice uh, and associate that. So uh, <clears throat> I'm going to start in the order that that Skype has everybody's face listed. Uh, so Neil, uh, what is your favorite Mega Dungeon? Ooh. I will give a quick answer and then a little bit longer one. I My favorite is always going to be Under Mountain, but my current home campaign is actually inside of the Emerald Spire, a super dungeon for Pathfinder. So mm. it's 16 levels, and each level is written by a different author. You know, and people like Ed Greenwood, Rich Baker, Keith Baker, you know, and Wolfgang Bauer, people like that, you mm-hmm. know. And so that's that's the one I've been in for a couple of years now with my players, and that's the one that's I would say near and dear to my heart. Which is similar to the way they sort of uh, designed and wrote Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which is the latest incarnation of Undermountain, as I recall. Right? They had a different author sort of do each level of it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they did. Like Dan Dillon. Dan. Oh, Dillon. what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Sam, what is your favorite Mega Dungeon? Uh, well, that's a rough question to answer, but I will, I'm, I'm going to pull a Neil and I'm going to give you two answers. The first answer is the mega dungeon I'm actually running right now, which is a, a place called Barrow Maze, which is, uh, I'm actually running the OSR version of it. There is a 5e version of it. It's a, uh, it's a nice mega dungeon by a gentleman, uh, named Dr. Greg Gillespie, who is a, a professor up in Canada 
and he has made it his uh, his his business to create interesting mega dungeons, and uh, that's the first one that he published that I learned about. So uh, it's really really good. So that's my current favorite. My all time favorite though uh, is the original Temple of um, of Elemental Evil mm. from first edition, uh, the good old T one to T four module that begins in the town of Hamlet and. Then you go to the ruined moat house, and then you actually go into the true temple, Lareth the Beautiful. <laughs> um, so that's that. That's just uh, way back in the day. That's what I I played through. Not even as a GM at that point, I was a player and uh, died many times. And <laughs> uh, it holds a special place in my heart. Very good, Dan Dillon. What is your favorite mega dungeon? Well, so it's a little bit of an interesting thing for me because I didn't really get heavily into Mega Dungeons early on in my my D and Ding. Uh, I joined a Temple of Elemental Evil campaign uh, right at the end, basically, and I actually got to play Lareth the Beautiful, which was uh, very interesting <laughs> because the uh, the party had captured him and were uh, had basically given him the options of helping them or not making it out of their lives. So he chose to be very helpful. Um, <laughs> It uh, so, so Temple of Elemental Evil is uh, has kind of a special place in my heart for that. I basically just waltzed in for the climax of that that campaign, mm-hmm. and and that was that. So uh, Undermountain is really uh, the one that I've had the most experience with. So that's sort of my default favorite. But there are aspects of Rap and Ethic that I really really mm. enjoyed. There was there was cool <laughs> yeah. stuff going on in there. Is that the one that uh, Monty Cook put out back in the day? Uh, nope. Rappin' Ethic, no? I believe, was by Frog no. God. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's the one? There, uh, Monty Cook put one out back in the third edition days after he split from from Wizards. And I can't remember I'm sure was. this would be an internet debate on the pronunciation, but it would be Patolis or Tolis. Yeah, that's ah, it. There you go. Right, right, right. See? I knew somebody would would have it for me. That was a huge... Wait, I thought Tolis was that's a city. A, yeah, that's yeah. a yeah. huge... That's the yeah. city by the spire. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I'm sure there was a dungeon in it, but it was. Yeah, the city is yeah. right above the dungeon. Right. right. Uh... But that's what I was thinking of. Yeah. Okay, very good. So, Rabbit, what is your favorite mega dungeon? All right. So, this will be sort of a deep cut, and it has an asterisk um, Caverns <laughs> of Cascatton. Um, okay. Oh, when, nice. I was, yeah. when I was eight years old, my dad ran us um, in uh, a mega dungeon that was. For the first couple layers was Caverns of Cascatton. And then as you got deeper, it went into completely homebrewed content that he drew out in really, really complicated, detailed maps that I still have. Wow. So nice. I have a very, very deep affection for it. And I tend to run mega dungeons of my own design other than that. Okay, cool. So. Very good. Uh, and I'm going to... Oh, yeah, Sam. Can I actually shout out to two other mega dungeons that yes. I think deserve some recognition um, from back in the day. Uh, there's a nice little uh, setup called the D- uh, Dark Tower, and then there's the Caverns of Thracia. Both of those are by Janelle Jaquays. So those are really, really good products. I, don't know, I haven't heard of those. That's cool. Nice. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name my favorite Mega Dungeon as well, um, and it is one that nobody said, but is related to one that came up a few times. I actually prefer Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil mm. Uh, mm. by Bruce Cordell, I think, wrote it. Um, uh, it was a pretty fantastic adventure. I, I first ran through it as a player. Well, mostly ran through it until we all died and gave up. Um, 
And but that gave me enough of a sense of sort of how how it works and how awesome it is that I then attempted to run it at least twice and successfully got beginning to end on it once. Um, and it is it is the return to the or it is the temple of elemental evil. But then like fast forward, full of all the little nostalgic you know homages to the original, but way bigger and and more complex and has even more going on. So yeah. uh, I have always I think really enjoyed Cook, that. Actually. Was it Monty yeah. Cook? Yeah. I knew. It. Yeah. Dang it, Bruce Cordell I, did Return to the Tomb of Horrors. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah I, I knew it was one of yeah. them. Bruce Bruce Cordell also did the Gates of Firestorm Peak, which is also a really great right. adventure. Mm. Yeah. Very good. Thank you for correcting me. Yeah, so, so those are all of our favorite mega dungeons. Uh, I think it's probably worth asking the question: um, wh- What is a mega dungeon like? How is a mega dungeon different than a dungeon or a death trap dungeon or whatever other source of? dungeon phenotypes that we've invented as gamers uh, how do we define mega dungeon mm. i think of a mega dungeon as the dungeon is the main part of the campaign maybe you're doing other stuff but it's really the centerpiece um <clears throat> and you could also use it for hey there's just this really big dungeon where we do a lot of our adventuring but the majority of my campaigns tend to be centered on a dungeon so okay so so if a good ch- big chunk of your campaign or your storyline is taking place within a singular large dungeon that's a mega dungeon is that what you're saying yeah that's that's probably okay. where i'd start okay uh, anybody want to add yeah. to that yeah dan I, I, sure. I, I'd, agree, I'd agree with that as the baseline um definitely you're going to look at size scope how how much of a game you're going to be in it and to me uh, a mega dungeon is often it's less one big sprawling thing and it's going to be broken more into sections um but that you know that that might vary a little bit depending on how a particular mega dungeon is designed but whenever mm-hmm. i think of it you think of it as having a, the the standard default is probably different levels that you'll kind of delve down into deeper and deeper as you go but it even it could even be um designed laterally uh like different wings that you will visit mm-hmm. at different times and because the the dungeon is the main campaign location uh, the dungeon itself often is the enemy in, in a way, um, and and because of the way that that works, uh, a mega dungeon ends up being much more reliant on sort of at least old school style. It becomes reliant on resource management. It's not just about going and exploring someplace and defeating all the monsters. It's about exploring it and finding out what's there and trying maybe not to fight all the monsters because it's a whole ecosystem in in a way not even Mm. it doesn't have to be an ecosystem that makes sense but it's an ecosystem nonetheless Mm -hmm. and so you don't necessarily want you're not you're not going in uh to just go to five rooms and wipe everything out and come back and expect them to be empty still actually to get deeper into that there should be multiple goals that you can accomplish while you're in the dungeon you're not just in there for oh yeah, we're rescuing one person and get in and get out. Uh, There should be treasure to find, different enemies that you're looking for, different people that you have to rescue, multiple things that you can accomplish as you go deeper. Um, And also fewer reasons to leave. You can uh, replenish some level of supplies uh, while you're there. Yeah, I think 
Go ahead. Yeah, or at least have a way to get to camp and get back. But the main things you want to accomplish are in there, and they lead to each other in a reasonable story kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think like kind kind of combining them all in the way I would look at it is like the mega dungeon becomes a hub for more than just a singular thing. You know, like you were mentioning the five rooms cleared. I got what I needed. I left. I didn't stumble onto any deep plots or anything else. But that mega dungeon, it just there's always a little bit more and like mm-hmm. that, you know, and that's kind of that essence of it is you want to go deeper. You, you know, you want to go to that next wing or you want to find out who's in charge of all these like crazy monsters that happen to be living together. And I think it, you know, it turns into more and more. And there's often multiple entrances and exits and there's often different factions yeah. So, you know, I think yes. people when when people hear, oh, Mega Dungeon, they just think, oh, it's just a place with a lot of rooms. It's a dungeon with <laughs> a lot of rooms. And that's doesn't quite encompass the actuality of what a Mega Dungeon is. Or at least what and a good Mega Dungeon is. Yeah. yeah. Sure. When you mentioned ecosystem or one of the main things that jumped into my head, it's not necessarily an ecosystem of plants, animals, that sort of thing. Right. There's this interconnected societal ecosystem as well, where you know oh, if yes. you disrupt, you disrupt this one gang, then that's going to destabilize the power and create a vacuum, and this other gang is going to run rampant, right. and that, that's going to change yep. the dynamic. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, that's exactly what I was talking about. Um, yep. Not not plants and animals, but actual beings. Right. right. Yep. I. I when I've written about this before, one of my biggest pieces of advice was have potentially friendly sentient beings who are not the party present in the dungeon. Whether it's evil mm. adventuring parties or neutral adventuring parties or different tribes of goblins, orcs, whatever in there. Um, I mean, not every mega dungeon has to do that, looking at you, Tomb of Horrors. But <laughs> <laughs> Is the Tomb of, is is really the tomb of Horrors a mega dungeon? Uh, well, it's I would, what you're doing. I, I, mean, I would say Return to the Tomb of Horrors was definitely a mega dungeon. Yeah. That was a giant box set, and, yeah. all, and they added so much more to that. The original it's, doesn't It's kind of an endurance much. trial, really, more than anything else. Yeah, that, that's fair. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's kind I, of like a video game, yeah. you know, challenge. Well, and it, it has it has some elements of mega dungeon style sure. play, but I I would say it's not a mega dungeon. Yeah, the original. I, I think that that's why I wanted to sort of get into this is because I think there are things that are big dungeons that I don't know that I would call mega dungeons. Like the Tomb of Horrors is not the the central theme of an entire campaign. It is a few session adventure. You know, right. Um, yeah. And that's that's the difference that I think uh, I'm latching on to as I hear all of all of our brilliant panel sort of talk about this. Right. Um, you know, whereas uh, return uh, to the Tomb of Horrors might be right? Uh, right in the same way. Let's look at let's look at what's been published for fifth edition so far. Um, which of the various dungeons that we've seen in fifth edition uh, would we consider to be mega dungeons? Well, I mean, Undermountain Dungeon of the Mad Mage, obviously. That's that's your kind of archetypical mega dungeon right sure. there. Um, as far as the other ones, uh, I think you could make a case for Princes of the Apocalypse. Yeah, I think has some, definitely uh, Princes of the Apocalypse. Some, yeah. Has some mega dungeon elements to it. Like, you spend some time outside of the dungeon, but the dungeon is the core feature of the setting. So I think so. 
And initially they start separate, but then they do all converge and right. it kind of gets more in depth once you get down in there. So definitely. Yeah. But, but I'd like that's, 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 I'm on the fence, but I'm also on the fence about tomb of annihilation. You know, the tomb of the nine gods at the end of tomb of annihilation yeah, see, to I'm me a... is, is also on the fence for the same reason, hmm. because there's sort of one, one main goal. And even though it's a really huge dungeon, um, it it's it's closer to me to Tomb of Horrors in that right. you go in and you have a specific goal and your your goal is sort of, you're all you know you're almost laser focused on completing that goal and then get out and right. that's not really what a mega dungeon is. Yeah, I would I think I would say that Tomb of Annihilation's dungeon is more of a really big death trap dungeon than it is yes. uh, a mega dungeon. And there's a difference. A for people who, who may not be aware, the, the idea of a death trap dungeon in D&D is that this is a dungeon designed to kill anybody who goes into it. Um, they the were, Tomb of Horrors again. The, tomb, the original yeah. Tomb of yeah. Horrors, right? It was, <laughs> yeah. it was originally conceived, like the Tomb of Horrors was like the original death trap dungeon, right? And it was conceived of as a a challenge, a tournament module for for conventions. Like the whole point is not to complete the dungeon and tell the story in that in this type of of D and D play. The point is see how far you can go and survive and try to survive longer than the other players, so you can say you won. Um, it actually <laughs> comes across when you read it to me because right. yeah. that was exactly how I thought of running it. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so I think we've got a good sense of what a mega dungeon is and how it's different than other types of of dungeons that that we have identified in, in the gaming community because gamers must categorize things, right? <laughs> uh, so, what makes a mega dungeon as a primary setting for a campaign or for a story? What makes a mega dungeon different than other settings? that you might have a, a campaign in. Do you wait? So let me clarify your question. Yeah. Do you mean what makes it different in terms of about how I run it as a DM or do you mean just in terms of what about it makes it different? I, th I think what, a, what, a, what are the unique sort of features, uh, advantages, disadvantages, etc., that a mega dungeon presents that other campaign settings don't. Does that clarify? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, go ahead, Rabbit. Uh, the first things I was going to say were, you know, limited scope of movement. You've got a map in front of you. There's only so many directions people can go. That they're not doing things like I go to the tavern and look for rumors or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. They are figuring out what section of the dungeon they're going to explore next, or they're returning to segments of the dungeon that they've set up. Mm -hmm. previously as camps and, and so i don't know and, and people might think of that as being a disadvantage and that it's limited but it's i don't think it is like there's a lot of exploration that can be done in a mega dungeon without the overwhelmingness of you just have the entire world to wander you know it, yeah it depends on what you're in the mood for um it, it can be very relaxing if you're you know not really into a whole bunch of politics and um trying to figure out what to do with the hooks that you're being given, there is always a hook, which is, you know, explore the next area. Um, right. Yeah, the, uh, the the draw of the mega dungeon as a campaign in a setting, to me at least, is that sense of focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, although I I, yet, I would argue, uh, you said if if players don't want to have to deal with or the, or the DM doesn't want to have to deal with the politics, but I would argue that you can have a lot of politics because of the different factions in a mega dungeon. I probably oh, sure. had I probably had more yeah. politics in my mega dungeon campaigns than anything else. I run all of them. I run all of my mega dungeons that way, yeah. but they're a little bit more focused. Yes, uh, absolutely. Kind of like they said, it, it, it is way more in your face, and it is um, more clearly an obstacle rather than okay. Now a player with social anxiety has to come up with a reason to even approach the Duchess when they're a, you know, street urchin assassin sort of person. And why would they even get past the front door? Right. Well, you're in a dungeon and the politics are probably, you know, uh, this orc chieftain who is like, well, since you're here or, you know. Yeah, it's pretty obvious uh, which factions are at war with each other in a mega dungeon, whereas up in the surface, uh, you may not know who the bad guy is and, and who they're trying to kill. Right, exactly. Absolutely. I, get also, I also want to just point out that, uh, you know, um, when you're looking at the map for a mega dungeon, the mega part means that place is sprawling. It's not the case where, oh, your entrance leads to one big room and there's a door to the east and a door to the west. And, and then you've got a hallway off of those and then they lead to one single room with two doors. And so that you kind of stepwise go through room one, room two, room mm-hmm. three. It's not like that at all. It's mm-hmm. there are multiple arms in that dungeon, multiple passageways, multiple directions to go. The rooms aren't just squares in many cases. Uh, and it becomes uh, maze-like in a way. And so part of the game is being able to figure out how to wrap your head around mapping that correctly or buying a map from one of the factions, maybe, uh, or (laughs) figuring out some way to get your bearings so that you don't just uh, walk into the wrong territory. You know, uh, there it's... I think some people might think of dungeons uh, as these sort of small, compact little things. And the mm-hmm. mega part of that name is really important in this case, that there is such a huge amount uh, of space there to investigate that you can, you know, try many different things within there. So it's, it is constrained, but it's constrained in a different way than, say, a wilderness adventure is constrained or a city adventure is sure. constrained. Now, you mentioned mapping, and that brings up an interesting point, because one of the the common tropes, uh, classic sort of tropes of, of uh, Mega Dungeons particularly, is uh, is the, the players trying to map out where they've gone and what have you. How many of you, when you run a Mega Dungeon, make your players draw the maps and, and figure no. it out? God, no. Uh, I, so, so that's a no from Dan. So, that's a no from me. But, okay. When... Uh, when... When, when I talk about Return to the Tomb of Horrors, that is not the name I say in my head. Uh, I and my friends at the game store referred to it as Return to the Tomb of Mapping. Yeah. And it was a grueling nightmare. Uh, one of the players was pretty old school and insisted on mapping the dungeon as, as everybody went through it. And it just took so long it yeah. ground the pace of the game to a halt well and so much so much of asking your players to do the mapping is just it, it's like a real life skill challenge where it, the challenge is can the dm adequately communicate what's going on to the player right uh, where when i started playing that was a big part of the draw in the gameplay was mapping out the dungeon now 
keep in mind, I was eight, so right. this was really fun. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. And I enjoyed it. But um, but since then, I've, I've gone to using either Dwarven Forge or uh, Tactiles and laying it out mm. so that people don't have to do it unless they want to. Um, you know... It, we have less time to actually play, so sure. yeah. the the grinding to a heart to a halt to struggle is real. I mean, so you know, part of the part of the uh, the draw for the mapping was, um, you know, if you're mapping something and you you can see the the shape of the rooms start to form, and you have this map as a player, and you might notice that these two rooms uh, look very close or there's space between this room and this other hallway over here. Uh, there might be a secret room there. Right. And then well, you, can you can sort see of, my face right now. You can, you, you can <laughs> sort of go and, and you can look and try to figure out, okay, well, is that it, it, I can focus on that spot because to me, the, the PC who's mapping might be thinking, Hey, there's something there. There might be an alcove, a hidden alcove, or a concealed door, or some kind of a fa false wall. Something there that I could maybe check on. When you don't, um, it's harder to do that when you provide the players with a map. So that is that that is an aspect of of sort of old school gaming that, uh, you know, the the more modern editions don't really lend themselves to that. Uh, necessarily, but it's still entirely possible. You can still do it, but oh, you have to do it a little bit differently. I, I, um, I, but I, I do agree that uh, in a lot of cases, it really slows things down. Yeah. But I'll tell you, in 5th edition, I have had my players map. I, in every edition I've played, I've had players map, and I've also run games where I don't have them map. I, I right. conveniently have them uh, have a map available or a scrap of map available so that they can mostly have uh, some information about it and, and not entirely have to rely upon their own mapping skills because it does get boring and tedious uh, in right. some cases, for sure. I, my, my experience with having the players mapping uh, is similar to, let's say, encumbrance and experience points. Like, <laughs> like, like I, I get it, but I don't need that in my game, right? <laughs> right. So... I mean, so but you, but you, you gotta you gotta understand though that ba back in the day when you know you mm -hmm. used to get experience points for gold and yeah. so it was oh, actually yeah. more lucrative and and better experience to risk ratio for you to not fight the creature to actually find a way to steal that creature's treasure without it finding out and then you get experience for defeating the monster even though you didn't murder it <laughs> and you get experience for the xp that you get and by the way you're also taking all the tapestries and all of the urns and all of everything that might have any tiny bit of value in there because when you take it back to town to the market and sell it uh, then you're going to get money, and when you get that money, you get XP for that. And so, therefore, encumbrance was important because not everybody can carry 12 urns in their hands, right? Sam, Sam, we get it. You're uh. old. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, just, I'm, just saying, like, I, I'm saying, like, I know a lot of these things aren't sort of part of the modern game, but I'm just I'm pointing out, like, ever, nobody likes encumbrance, right? Look, I don't use encumbrance most of the <laughs> like, time did either. Did you realize but how I, many, like, cans of worms and potential minefields <laughs> that you've just laid out right, right there? But, I, but I'm just saying... Saying that you know that that's sort of part of that's part of the old school experience, and so like the whole reason I'm on this episode is to kind of try to adjust for those and bring that a little tiny bit of that experience into the modern gaming sphere because I think that is part of D and D that a lot of more modern and newer players don't have experience of and probably don't have a lot of chance of having experience of that. But Dungeon of the Mad Mage just came out, and it is a true full-on mega dungeon so this is something that's going to have to be reconciled 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, it, Dungeon of the Mad Mage is definitely a true mega dungeon. We'll talk about it in more depth next week. Uh, on a lot of in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it's twenty separate dungeons. Uh, you know, to some degree, yeah. they, they right. interact with each right. other, but to some degree, yeah. they're completely sort of separate little ecosystems. So uh, we'll have that discussion that next week. But yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. the one thing that bugged me about it. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. So I'll yeah. say. That yeah. the one thing that no, me. absolutely. That's fair. Uh, and I think that opinion will be expressed next week when we when we review it, because I have similar thoughts. And um, I'm just going to throw out that uh, I kind of dig encumbrance and I make my players track how many arrows they have. <laughs> yeah. All that good stuff. So oh, just oh, saying. So you're old, too. We get it. Okay. <laughs> I, I played Dan. that way and I don't run that way because I played that way. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Fair yeah, no, but in terms of mapping, my my strategy when I've done because I recently ran uh, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil for Fifth Edition. That was actually our D and D Next playtest module. The uh, the crazy chaos of of that was my explanation as to why you know things kept changing as the playtest documents came out. Um, <laughs> right, uh, and but. When I do run the mega dungeons like that, or I also ran Princes of the Apocalypse, uh, when I do run the mega dungeons, what I tend to do, I tend to draw the maps out for them, but I will have a piece of paper and I will draw out the maps literally one room at a time and then show it to them. And so they'll have some of that same experience of being like, hey, there's a weird gap there. What's going on? Like Sam was talking about. But there, you don't have the real life skill challenge of me as a DM trying to tell them, well, it's this many squares wide and this many squares deep and, and the hallway is kind of here and, and put the door over there and trying to get them to actually take my verbal description uh, and put it into a map, which doesn't make a lot of sense because their players don't need a verbal description. They can see it. Uh, and so it becomes this weird sort of meta game that has little to do with the actual game. So I, right. I secretly love mapping in spite of all of the issues with it, <laughs> but uh, much, much like running a game with encumbrance if uh, on the reverse. If I were to do that, Brandis would probably divorce me. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I do not enforce that in my games. Well, I think the flip side of this too is that you know, talking about the Mega Dungeon and it being so big in the Undermountain game that I am running for Dan and some other people. Uh, there's not an ounce of mapping that we've done because the idea, the concept of Undermountain being so big and there just being empty spaces there that they can go from. You know, if you want to say encounter A to encounter B without necessarily mapping it is something you could do in whatever mega dungeon you set up for your players. Mm-hmm. And then murder them. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Now, I think there are some other um, common sort of tropes or stereotypes or, or critiques, I think, of mega dungeons that are worth discussing. And one of them, you know, one of the big ones is, is the mapping and how do you not get lost in such a big, complex sort of twisting maze um but i think another part of it is that the mega dungeon particularly more than than normal dungeons has the sort of uh monster closet stereotype sort of uh, built in right the idea that you go from one place to another place and it doesn't they don't necessarily make sense together and the monsters are just sort of hanging out in the in that room waiting for you to show up and 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 that kind of stuff uh so i'm curious what people think about that sort of critique of the mega dungeon well, that's think... not the correct way to run a mega dungeon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I mean, I, sure you know, Sam that, was going to say that. The, the creatures yeah. don't sit in each room and just twiddle their thumbs waiting for the adventurers to show up and murder them. Yeah, they're actually in in in, in 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 any dungeon, though, right? Like you, 
any even if it's a five room dungeon, if you're walking in and slaughtering a bunch of creatures in the atrium and there's a room 10 feet away, if they hear that, those creatures are either going to run away to, to save their own lives or they're going to come attack you. Right. A trapper is blending in with the wall and the ceiling because that's how they trap their food. Also, it means that there's food there for there to be trapping, which potentially is also a monster that lives there some other way. Uh, ecosystem was exactly the right term that Sam mm. used earlier. Um, if you're sort of doing it in a Diablo kind of way where the monsters are just sort of sitting there waiting for you, <laughs> you're not really understanding how to run the dungeon, even if the way it's written in the write-up is there's a purple worm in this room or mm. there's a mimic in this room. Uh, it, it is incumbent on the DM to sort of provide the, okay, why do they live there? How did they get there? Um, how are they going to interact with anyone who comes in there? Mm -hmm. Right. The the book provides us a starting snapshot and hopefully some idea of what movement and life and flow in the dungeon will look like. But then it's up to us as DMs to to actually animate that. Yeah. And, and I th and I, and I can like honestly say like not all mega dungeons are, are written equally. Right. Um, some of them feel like monster closets, uh, a series mm -hmm. of monster closets, and that's the way they're written, and they don't make it easy to make it something else. Whereas, uh, and this goes back a long time, like modern concepts, uh, it's very common in a modern mega dungeon uh, adventure that they that the text outright says, oh, by the way, if a fight breaks out here, then look at the creatures that are in rooms 10, 14, and 17, because they're going to hear that and come running, you know? Um, and so that's fairly common. And, but I've even run into that same thing going back into some of the second edition um, modules that I've converted into fifth edition. So that's not a new concept, but it's it, I think good design has come to the fore, right? And more, it's more common to see that kind of stuff where that makes it really easy. Like as a DM, I don't have to say, uh, wait, they're starting a fight here. Hold on a second. Let me flip a few pages and see what the creatures are around you to see what they might do. Um, yeah, well, see, it's the domino that domino effect i mean bringing up the purple worm the reason the purple worm is there might be so that the goblins behind know when someone's fighting the purple worm and what do they do and how prepared are they now for you know the players to come interact with them so now i want to run a monster closet where the monsters are all kept in suspended animation by <laughs> some wackadoo mages spell that you trigger when you enter the room and they spring automatically to life and you have to figure out how to fix that. But it's like Kevin in the woods. Right. <laughs> right. The monster mm. closet becomes the, oh becomes the God. feature. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so but then when you, when you defeat the wizard at the end, there's still a whole half of the mega dungeon left. And when you defeat him, all the other creatures come out of stasis. Ooh. So to escape from there now, <laughs> now nothing is in stasis. So it's a little <laughs> bit like the resident evil movie. Yeah. yeah that's what it turns into. Yeah. So, so you, we talked about this idea of the politics and the fairly straightforward politics and the, the ecosystem and how, um, you know, defeating one group might disrupt the ecosystem and change the politics of the dungeon and all that kind of stuff that I think are hallmarks of really good mega dungeons. I think every mega dungeon I've dealt with um, that was really fun and really good incorporated a lot of that. And I think one of the advantages of of that scenario and of having that focused uh, political struggle and, and ecosystem situation um, is that it's 
it's a lot easier to disrupt, right? If I'm on the surface and and um, we're going to significantly disrupt society by by you know some group dying or whatever. Um, that's a pretty significant disruption and that might happen like once in a campaign and be like the whole focus of the campaign. But that kind of stuff can happen all the time in a mega dungeon and it's a lot more common and easier to handle because it's so, so common. Um, but how do you, how do you keep track of that? Like does how do you keep track of the different factions and figure out what's going to happen when one of them is, is, you know, damaged or wounded or killed or destroyed or whatever, or the, the tunnel collapses. Uh, one time in the return of the temple of elemental evil, we actually stone shaped a hallway closed and just starved out a whole, an entire orc tribe because they couldn't get oh. out. You know, <laughs> So uh, like, but when those, those, sh- because those shifts and those disruptions are more likely to happen, um, it's probably worth discussing how how as a DM do you handle that because you're going to have to figure it out more than you might on another type of campaign. The easy and- answer to that for me is take notes, you know, just kind of keep a notebook handy. And uh, as these ideas strike you for how things can interact, jot it down, make a note of it. What what am I writing down in my notebook? What, kind of, what are you talking about? Like, um, well, like you said, um, okay, so this section of the dungeon has been sealed off. Either everything in there is going to die, and any of their scouts who were out, or any of their allies who they deal with, which uh, might be detailed in the adventure already, might not be, uh, they're going to come back and find that the way into home is sealed. And how are they going to react to that? Are they going to go get other allies to break through that cave-in? Are they going to track down who did this and search for revenge? You know. Okay. And I actually you also, find it you... easier to track when you're doing a um, when you're doing a dungeon as opposed to doing a broad world thing, because um, the dominoes are a lot easier to see. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's it's different if you're running a dungeon that you wrote yourself, and so mm-hmm. you have some idea of you can pre-write some of the potential options. Not that they'll be valid later, but uh, if you're doing a pre-written dungeon. Yeah, okay, I can see it's a little bit more difficult where the book is telling you this is the situation mm-hmm. and that's completely impossible because of something that the players do. But I think that's the case with any pre-written adventure. But um, it, it should be pretty obvious that if you do something that really blows up a section of the dungeon, everything in that section in an outward cascading domino fall is going to be affected. Yeah, yeah. I like also when oh, you're when you're talking about your factions, sorry Neil. Oh, you uh, go. When you're when you're talking about your factions, um you're also writing down okay, who's the leader? Uh who's the second in command? Um and you know if those two people are gone is you need to have yourself a sort of idea of okay, are these is this a goblin tribe where, you know, as soon as the strong man is gone, the second in command is going to take over, but as soon as they're gone, the rest of everybody's going to scatter because no one else is strong enough to sort of take over and take command and lead uh, versus, you know, uh, some other kind of uh, tribe or faction where mm-hmm. uh, one, you know, the leader, uh, half the tribe gets killed, but the other the other half stays together and a new leader arises. And, mm-hmm. you know, so you'll have an idea of that based on what the faction is, what species it is, what kind of resources they have and what their goal is. Right. So you, you're going to make a little three by five card that says, here's the name of the faction or what the PCs know it as. And here's what it is. Goblins, kobolds, whatever. Right. I'm just picking cherry picking the most easy, right? Sure. And then, uh, and then you know who's the leader, who's the second in command, and what happens if those two get killed, right? 
and what's their goal if their goal is met what do they do do they do they help the party do they just agree not to not to attack the party do they you know what do they need right and and that's that's going to be your notes and then when stuff happens during the campaign well you just make little notes on that card about okay this happened and now here's the situation in that faction just like you would run anything else mm-hmm. neil did you ever thought you, you were trying to say something earlier yeah, the way that, like, from a visual perspective that I would kind of look at it is almost like Venn diagrams. Um, and depending on how much they cross, that can be how much they're affecting each other. Like, I had two warring factions of, like, snake-themed people, and they essentially had different deities that they were following. So they were, like, constantly fighting each other. There's also a group of troglodytes that just kind of basically, like, if you do the right thing, they'll just let you pass. They don't mm-hmm. really care. Um, you know, so their Venn diagram doesn't really cross with anyone. Whereas if you essentially take out one side of the snake people, the other one will immediately take over that area, like mm-hmm. instantly. That's That mm-hmm. was their whole goal in the first place. So I think looking at it from possibly a Venn diagram perspective can help as well. See all oh, the, yeah. Any kind of visual flow chart you can make is, is, is probably going to be really helpful. Yeah, all, all the things you guys are talking about remind me why I love Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil so much, right? Because <laughs> because they do that. If every single mm-hmm. faction they describe, here's the leader, and here's the second in command, and here's how the second in command is trying to kill the leader, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and, and take over, because they're all conniving and betraying and whatever, and that's sort of a known part of the, the whole deal. But then it's also, here's how this faction is at war with that faction. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot to sort of consider there, and but you know it's all sort of built in, um, you know. And and there's even a lot uh, opportunities, as was discussed. Uh, I think Neil mentioned the idea that one faction, if you if you walk into the Earth Temple and you manage to to you know get to a certain point and meet certain leaders or or second commands or whatever and have the right conversation, they might just be like, hey. It's okay. We'll let you go, but you have to promise to go down that hallway and deal with the next people because they're just aiming the, aiming the party at their enemies, right? Uh, they don't really care what the party's after, but if they can aim them at the people they want to see destroyed, all the better. Um, so it, it's it, it it it's worked really well for me in the past. But so m- managing relationships can always be tricky like that uh, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a lot of NPCs or even just factions. One of the things that I liked from uh, uh, as an example from the Vampire the Requiem books is they would often have a relationship web mm-hmm. where they would have uh, kind of half a page or whatever and they would have the character portraits for various important NPCs and then they would have a bunch of lines going between them all and you know a, a line going to and from each one and uh, they would have a short phrase for how each character views or thinks of the other one. And so those were very helpful for realizing, okay, so if you mess with this guy, you're going to piss off these two people, but you're going to get on this guy's good side. Right. It's kind of like the... It's kind of like the sidebars in the Ravnica book where each fact It has like a one-line phrase of how each faction thinks about the other factions, right? Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah, no, so here's the good news, I think, for for DMs who might be running a mega dungeon, um, is that... This all sounds very complicated, and and I don't think you have to know it right away, right? Uh, right. It, it, this is like any other time that like my players do something that's like, oh, this is going to have ramifications, but you know what? I just got to get through the next half hour, and then we're taking a then we're taking a two week break before our next game. I, then I got time to brainstorm it and figure it out, right? Um, so I never sweat 
when the party comes in and, and disrupts my world or my dungeon or my story or whatever, because then I get two weeks to sort of wrestle with it and figure and, and figure out how to make that work and how to and what the consequences of that are. And usually it makes me a better DM. It makes the story more interesting. Uh, and I think they're more engaged because they recognize that they're having an impact on how the narrative plays out. Yeah, you can just let yourself react. A lot of the things that they're doing will have some pretty logical consequences um, as uh, as they happen. And, you know, in this, I think they'll probably be more obvious to present themselves than uh, uh, in a broader, more open setting where mm -hmm. there's potentially more things that they may not even have thought of yet. Yep. That, that think... sense of focus, keeping everybody pointed in the right direction. Yeah, and I think the way you described it, Jeff, I would go all the way back to talking about like what makes a mega dungeon a mega dungeon. I think it's everything, you know, obviously everything that we've said. And of course, that like the idea that it's living hmm. to some degree, whereas like a, a dungeon is static, a mega dungeon has a life of its own. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you know you can you can provide information to the to the party without them even having to interact with the factions yet like if you're worried about how you're going to run the factions or whatnot you can provide information you know tapestries murals boss relief carvings on walls and floors mm -hmm. script on on in a hallway uh, symbols just etched into, you know, the wall next to a door or on a door itself. Uh, like all of those types of things, you know, if you if you describe a symbol, oh, it looks like a stylized S with a little plus sign next to it and a circle around the whole thing. Uh, they see that, you know, uh, in, in one particular area, they start getting the idea, okay, this might be some sort of territorial mark. Mm -hmm. If we see something else with this on it, we can actually show recognition of that and you know, we might un understand how to act better or we might have a better idea. You know, that mural might have a painting showing the history or the uh, the, the deification of, you know, the ancestor of the current tribal leader or whatever. And they'll if they start taking those clues and understanding them, it'll help them deal with the faction. And it'll help the GM sort of solidify those things as well. Um, because what happens is then the players start talking about it. And if the GM uh, herself or himself did not have... Uh, a good idea of what was happening yet just listening to the players the players will make up some stuff and you'll be like oh yeah that's good make a yeah. note of that <laughs> like that's what, you know oh that that's what they suspect or you might make a note and say i don't want to do that because that's the one they suspect and i want to surprise them right mm -hmm. that actually makes me think of something else which is that humans are really good at pattern recognition mm -hmm. and when you're in a dungeon which is pretty enclosed it's a lot easier to lay out things in a recognizable repeatable pattern and so to create a kind of a language of oh hey, hey I see um, I see markings like uh, Sam described or I see uh, specific things in the walls or now it's natural stone now it's old stone that give you an awful lot of information or give you hints about what's likely to be up next that um, that I really enjoy. Uh, you're almost have an opportunity to create a uh, language in how you describe the place and that um, uh, the players can learn and figure out and feel really smart when they do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I get. I think I have one more sort of aspect of Mega Dungeons that um, that is worth discussing as well, um, and that's the the fact that Mega Dungeons, to a certain degree, um, can come off a little bit artificial and in, in, in contrived. You know, in in you know, you've got several layers and they're all a little bit different, and they uh, coincidentally all of them get harder the deeper down you go. Uh, and and how do you how do you deal with the artificiality or the contrived nature uh, that, that is sort of, um, you know, definitional of a mega dungeon uh, and at the same time sort of drive story? Like, why do why do these people keep going into this increasingly dangerous situation if there's only one thing they want and it happens to be all the way at the bottom? There has to be a better way of dealing with that. All right. So so how do you deal with that? How do you how do you drive story through this sort of contrived artificial environment? Have more than one thing that they want and have a reason for why everything's there. Yeah. Okay. I think that's one way of doing it. I, th- I think there's that's multiple mine. ways of handling it. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, mine. I mean, that's, that's not the only way, but that's mine. Yeah. That's, that's you know, that's just into, you know, crafting your, your plot hooks for, for the mega dungeon. You don't want to, you don't want to just say, hey, there's a hole in the ground full of treasure. Go. You want to, you know, <laughs> give them give them goals, build those goals into the dungeon, use that unique ecosystem to your advantage, pick out interesting points of it and then make those points something that they want to find for whatever reason. What sort of reasons would you suggest, Dan Dillon? Uh, it could be, um, you know, it could be some particular artifact, uh, some item of treasure that they have to have, either because uh, they have to help buy off their family or friends gambling debt to the local thieves guild. And the only thing they're going to take other than, you know, Uncle Joe's right hand is this thing that's been lost or taken by those deep dwarves who live down mm. in the hole. Um, maybe they have to find something down there. That's a, a rare reagent for a cure for a plague. That's, that's uh, sweeping through the town. Uh, perhaps someone important has been taken by the, uh, the Grimlock uh, chuds <laughs> who live under the city and have dragged people down for God knows what reason. So, so in other words, uh, craft good MacGuffins. Is that what you're saying? Oh yeah. Okay. Concise way to put it. It, it only has to start with one MacGuffin. Let, let's say uh, let's say that there's a small village and it's near the entrance to a storied kind of tomb complex, and uh, no one. It's sort of sealed off, and nobody nobody goes there because they know it's so dangerous. But then uh, something happens, and some goblins start raiding, um, and uh, some some local you know. Constables or guards or something, they follow the goblins back after the last raid, and they see that they're going into this secret entrance to this this tomb complex. Well, these things have lived there for a long time, and they never bothered the village. Why? Now your job is find out why. So you go and you deal with the goblins, and you learn that the goblins have to come and raid the human village now because, or the civilized person's village, mm-hmm. because there has been a shift in the power dynamic in the tomb, and uh, they can no longer get enough food in the tomb. So uh, instead of just going and slaughtering a bunch of goblins, now you have a thing where you can now go investigate into this tomb, and they offer you some great artifact of treasure to uh, to help them negotiate or to help them overcome whoever is oppressing them to not let them get enough food, and then they agree to not raid the village anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you go in there, and you find out the, the opponent is much uh, more powerful than you thought, so now you have to go to a third faction and ask them for help and negotiate that. And it, that becomes a long set right. of it's a campaign chain. arts, it's right? A chain. It's, a ch- right. it's a chain. You only got to start with one. 
well, and, and have and, an ecosystem, and they'll find stuff in there to be interested in. And what's more, so this is where I come clean. I'm not a big fan of mega dungeons generally. Uh, I don't, <gasps> I don't, I don't like to run them. I'm, I'm, I'm it's not my t- style of play, and this, this is p- a big part of why. But there are certain mega dungeons I am a big fan of, uh, and it's the ones uh, like. If you look at uh, Princes, Princes of the Apocalypse, which I am absolutely going to argue is a mega dungeon, um, it starts with, hey, there are some bandits running around causing trouble. And that's the beginning of the chain that Sam is talking about. And then it's a chain and it's all connected and it's escalating sort of uh, the stakes, right? And the scope, right? As you go f- further and further, you discover more about what's going on. And eventually it leads to, oh my gosh, if we don't stop them, somebody's going to summon an elemental prince and they're just going to run ramshot all over the, the place. And that's no good, right? Uh, Return to the Temple of Elemental Evil has less of sort of the this building chain. There's a short chain sort of at the beginning but once you get to the actual uh temple um the stakes are already known like this is an apocalyptic thing so is it really dangerous and stupid for us to keep going level by level into more and more dangerous situations yeah but if we don't the world ends so it's probably worth doing right right? um and so those are the kind of stakes that make mega dungeons work for me uh either escalating like that like uh, prince of the apocalypse does or just outright knowing like if i don't do it you know it's it's pretty much the end of the world so we better go ahead and do it um those work for me um other mega dungeons i tend i tend i've tried and i tend to just avoid they're not just not my thing so mm-hmm. that's fair enough Probably. Uh, you know i mean set, setting expectations is half the battle here it right? is like, absolutely that, that's actually one of my one of my main points is if if you really want to run a mega dungeon and it's going to be an active living ecosystem and it's going to have a lot of different interesting items you sell that to your players a lot differently than hey I'm really busy. I can only prep a little bit. I'm just going to run, you know, this generic Mega Dungeon X. And Mm -hmm. I want everybody to show up and come and slaughter some orcs uh, every Friday. (laughs) That's a very different experience, Mm -hmm. even if it's technically inside a Mega Dungeon. Right. Right. I mean, that that's, you know, so set expectations. And knowing yourself, if somebody were to pitch to you an idea and the game turned out to be something you don't enjoy then you ha- you have to own that and and admit it and and have a conversation with your dm about that and honestly right. if i'm that dm sam um and i'm the one who's like i'll come and do this this living environment mega dungeons uh, adventure with me um you're still going to get some of the benefits that the second dm is looking for so mm-hmm. so some of that is an issue of setting expectations but like mega dungeons are in some ways easier to run because you know the options of where the players are going to go right Mm -hmm. uh it's a little more predictable so you can kind of you know if that's if that's what you're looking for an adventure you know mega dungeons might be the thing to try out so so one of my favorite hooks was uh you have a guy who hires the party to go find some reagents and there's some special items he's looking for but the players go in and they encounter a completely bizarre situation and the one diversion I'm running now it's hey there's sentient swords and as you go in there's more different sentient swords <laughs> and they all have ego scores better than yours so you have to work <laughs> with them so they're dealing with that and then incidentally they find the treasures and items that they're looking for and then they find out what they do and now they have to make a decision about oh wait a minute do we actually want to hand these over to the guy or not mm. for reasons Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different things going on. 
and um, and a lot of hopefully good reasons to stay in there and explore further. Other than we just go deeper and it gets harder. Right. Um, I mean, in every situation, as the players go up in level, the CRs get higher. Yep. So that's that's what you get in a in a class based system. Right. I mean, as there's long really as there's no way around it, right? Yeah, as long as you're playing with classes, that's going to be the case. Depending on how you're running the dungeon, it doesn't necessarily have to be as you get closer to the bottom, things get harder. Sure. It's just it still needs to be challenging for the players. If you're including a decent number of puzzles in addition to monsters whose CRs are inevitably going to increase, you're still going to be challenging your player's personal mental capabilities as well as getting to try out their new combat thing. I feel like uh, tougher monsters is one of those things that is lampshaded if you're playing D&D anyway. Yeah, oh, although yeah. although I would argue 5th edition probably handles it better than, than anything else D&D has put out because of the flatter oh, yeah. math. So, yeah, I I, yeah. Uh, I would agree with that too. Yeah. Okay, uh, we've been talking for an hour now, so uh, let's do last thoughts and wrap things up. How's that sound? Who's got a last thought on sure. Mega Dungeons you want to share? I actually have a set of information that is not really last thought, if I could, just because this is tips for the GMs running Sam, Mega Sam Dungeons, has a right? bullet list and he hasn't gone through it all, so go ahead, yeah, Sam. You're absolutely <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. You don't know me, Jeff. <laughs> uh Here's the thing about running a mega dungeon, along with understanding the ecosystem and the factions that you want to use and, and, and the map, you also have to know certain things about the rules. You need to make sure that if you put a lot of traps in your dungeon, that or if there are a lot of traps in the published dungeon you're running, that you know how to adjudicate your, your players detecting and disarming or, set, or setting off those traps. Uh, you need to know whether you're going to let everybody make perception checks or whether you're going to do a group check or what are you going to do when there's something they need to notice or some information they need to know, depending on whether you play in a more old school, I'm going to describe everything version, or whether you play in the sort of newer school, the player says, I, I want to look at that thing, I roll, investigate, right? You need to know what you're going to do about that before you walk into that game. You need to know whether you're going to use encumbrance rules or not. You need to know whether you're going to let your party bring in uh, low-level followers or hirelings because it's going to be really dangerous. You need to know how you're going to restock that dungeon if the dungeon is set up that they leave all the time and then come back or whether they rest inside the dungeon. Where do they rest? You need to know where that's going to be. Because those are the things that are going to start becoming important to the players because that's the stuff they're going to want to do. And you don't want to have to pause the game every time they do it to see how you were planning on doing that. You want to have a good idea of that. So in terms of running the dungeon, other than just the story elements and what is a mega dungeon and how do you structure it, you need to know or have jotted down in your notes how you're going to adjudicate those things. And let the players know that so that they understand if finding, if detecting and disarming traps is really important, you need to let your players know that. And if if finding a special safe place to rest is important, you need to let your players know that. If taking in the right number of followers or, or hirelings is important, you need to let your players know that. That's part of the setting the expectations portion. Okay. Also, dungeons are more than just what walls do you see and how, how high is the ceiling. They're all five senses. Is it wet? Is it dry? Is it old? Is it new? Is it is the stone rough? Is it smooth? 
Is it uh, has it been worked in terms of hewn by a civilized race, or is it natural caverns? What does it smell like? What does it what does it taste like? Is there a musty taste in the air? Like all of those things can be used to make a location creepier or less creepy, older or newer. Like all of those things are are sort of typical ways that you provide information to the party. That's not stuff that we normally do when they're in the forest or in the city or talking, you know, to the king and queen at the the ball. Right? Those are all different. So you have to, as a GM, sort of almost get a different kind of mindset in the beginning and understand that you're in a different ecosystem now. It's completely different. Now I've hit all my bullet points. Now you've hit all your bullet points? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So last thoughts from anybody else? Um, So I also have a bullet list, but it's written in my blog. So rather than go through it, uh, we'll just say, hey, I'll send Jeff the link to the uh, article and and, uh, that'll be that. And then I will send it to Sam and he'll put it in the show notes. Fantastic. <laughs> cool. And, and it, it, was, it was actually a article one, and I never wrote article two. So uh, maybe folks will suggest what I should write about for article two, and that go. would be nice for me. It nice. is it is timely right now with the the all the you know with Dungeon of the Mad Mage being the the new hotness. Yeah, for real. Uh, so I guess my last thought would be. Um... You know, give the Mega Dungeons a try, it, and I understand that they're not for everybody. If, like Jeff, I believe, uh, if they're not your particular cup of tea, don't let that turn you off of checking them out and and maybe taking a chance on the product, uh, because a lot of them are set up such that you can use the individual sections, pieces, or elements of them, and you can just rip those out and use them everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could pull you could pull one of those factions out, and they can be an Underdark thing you can pull them out and they can be a, a crime family uh you could just pull one of the levels of undermountain and run it as a standalone dungeon there's a, there's a lot of versatility in in a mega dungeon set uh so they're very worth checking out and not all mega dungeons are created equal so some of them i find uh, very much appeal to my 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 style sense or whatever uh, and well, well some of them don't and spoiler alert uh uh to my review of dungeon of the bad mage that i'll be recording next week but uh um it is the it is probably the most fantastic sequel to the book of layers i've ever seen <laughs> you know <laughs> so so i think for me kind of going off what dan said and i know a thing that i do for my players personally is let them out on occasion um if it's 100 percent in the dungeon that might not work for some players so i know for mine there's a town near that dungeon which they go back to and i let it be very open and free form and whatever they want to do kind of between levels and questing and stuff like that they're open to do and then you know and go back into the dungeon um, because they want to see the bottom and That's who a great are, point. And who are these people yeah. that are like, hey, there's a giant, massive underground tomb over here. Let's grow corn around. You know, like, <laughs> why are there always little villages around? I don't I don't understand these people. <laughs> we'll well, be fine. Jeff, you know, we're talking about a game where some wizards shoot fireballs out of their fingers. Hey, hey, so hey, hey, I'm shush, so worried shush, about quiet you. <laughs> grew corn next to the Temple of Elemental Evil. So. <laughs> all right, all right. Oh, a... It's valuable real estate, guys. That's right. 
Yeah, all right. Let's go ahead and call that the end of this episode. I want to thank Noble Knight for sponsoring this episode, but I also want to thank all of our guests. So, Rabbit Stoddard, if people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Uh, I'm uh, Cadillac on Twitter. Um, I won't try to spell it. It'll be in the notes. And uh, I have an oft-neglected blog, uh, deckofmanythings.blogspot.com. Very good. And Dan Dillon, if people want to find you, where would they go? Uh, sure. I'm on Twitter at Dan underscore Dylan underscore one. Uh, I'm also on Facebook as a moderator on the Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition Facebook group. It's the giant one with like 130,000 members. Um, so there's an awful lot of D&D talk happening there. Uh, you can also find me DMing uh, a Midgard campaign setting live stream game every Tuesday evening at eight Eastern called the World Tree Burns. And that is on the Encounter Roleplay Twitch network. Okay, and Sam Dillon, uh, if people want to find you, where should they go? Uh, they should go to rpgmusings.com, where I blog a lot about D&D and uh, Edge of the Empire Star Wars RPG. Uh, and they can find me on Twitter, at DM Samuel, and of course on the Tome Show. And this is the year that our RPG Musings is going to just completely blow up, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, it was. It's he been says going enthusiastically. For a long time. It has been going. For a long time. No, no. I just, I yeah. It, it was. It's. I mean, I've had this blog for a very long time, uh, and uh, and I have. I had several years in the beginning when I was very prolific, uh, and then it kind of fell off because I got really busy and and it went by the wayside. But uh, this is the year where my my one resolution is to get that back going. So I know yeah. that feel. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very good. Uh, and Neil, if people want to find your brilliance, where would they go to find it? Ooh, there's a lot of places. But if you go to Twitter, I'm there at Joe Moniak, Jack of all trades, master of none, IAC. And if you wanted to hear me run Dan and some other people in Undermountain, you could go to DSPN Presents, and there's like 16 episodes of me um torturing them that's probably the best way to say it and um i'm also the producer for a podcast all about young justice it's called whelmed the young justice files Ooh. and the new season came out so definitely go check that out okay now i have to ask do you subscribe to the dc universe uh, streaming service then yes yes i do and and what are your thoughts because i'm a huge dc fan and i haven't been able to justify the cost <laughs> so this is okay. completely so, irrelevant to the show but <laughs> Nope. I, I mean, honestly, if you wanted to wait and then make it feel like it's more worth it, that's totally there because you have the entire season of Titans. You have Young Justice, which the entire first half of season three will be done in January. You have Swamp Thing coming out, the new Harley Quinn cartoon coming out. Um, Doom Patrol is coming out as well, and they're all exclusive. Do they, do, so. they ha do they have the old stuff too? Like if I wanted to watch the old JLA, JLU stuff, is that on there? Yep. And a lot of the old Ooh. movies, like the live action movies are there as well. If you wanted to watch all of Lois and Clark, and who doesn't, you could. <laughs> okay, that's a little more tempting, though, because I got cut off of JL, JLU in the middle of watching it with my kids. So, all right. <laughs> back, to the, back to the actual show, though. <laughs> uh, I also want to thank all of you for out there listening, for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links, which you can find at thetomeshow.com. Uh, those go to Amazon and DMs Guild, and a few coppers go our way. Or for being a patron of the show directly at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. If you want to get a hold of the show, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. Uh, and I will pass that on to whoever needs to see it. It's usually me, but if you want to 
uh, tell uh, Dan why he's a, a brilliant man with a handsome beard, then uh, you can send that email to me as well, and I will forward it along to him. Uh, if you want to wish uh, Tracy well on her moving escapades, you can t- tweet at her. She is at Sarah Dark Magic. I am at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. The Tome Show is at The Tome Show. And this has been episode 315, where we dug a bit too deep in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't think we fancy, let me teach you about class Priest, fighter, bone, cats, a kick your ass You don't think we street, look at this table full of ice you don't think we hard, just touch my face. You don't think we can get it at the birds and the bees. I'm a pallet in the suits, but a thief in the shoes. My character shoots, cause they fold to the brim. With maxed out sass, out to up in my DM. He think he in charge, we don't worry about him. Simple when he has to get us, be like Jack the Swim. Master player, traitor, master creator. Look at me, master NPC generator. Just cause she a master doesn't mean you have to hate her. Got a boy, I don't need to be no master later. I don't care if over there your character is dying. Cause it's just like baseball. There's no crying. You wanna join in? Now you start realizing we're the cool, cool nerds. Call me Neil deGrasse Tyson. D to the R to the A and S. D and D. The dungeon master sets up a scenario. Then he or she asks, where would you like to go? We talk as a group, then decide together. There's no winning, yo. We could play forever. Stay right there. Let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. Stay right there. Let me answer your questions. I'll clear up all your misconceptions. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. You don't dress up to play D&D. Unless you want to. You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to, like me You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D You don't dress up to play D&D Unless you want to like me. I'm on the wall.